Luke chapter 23, if you join me there in uh, Luke chapter 23, we'll be looking down at verse 20 or 33 as we uh, prepare in a sense for observing the Lord's Supper this evening. And Luke chapter 23, we'll just be looking at this one verse and uh, get right to it as we look ahead and excited about observing the Lord's Supper here in just a few moments. As I think back through both human history and even the the history of our relatively young nation here, there's a handful of words that I think of that often come to mind that just the mention of that one word or two words uh, describing a particular place or a particular event, um, they elicit a strong response. Strong emotions, thoughts just come flooding back to our minds. There are strong feelings that are attached with it. There's words such as the Alamo, uh, 1776, Pearl Harbor, D-Day, Holocaust. When we think of those, we hear those words, my, they, they touch us. Our hearts are moved when we think of them, either from a perspective of being an American or simply, as in the Holocaust, just being a human being. Just a description, a one-word statement or a couple words together that describe an event that cause our mind to flood with memories and stories and maybe even pictures and strong thoughts, things that we've seen of it. And, and I think of Pearl Harbor and seeing videos and pictures of the aftermath and things like that. And just the mention of the name, just a slight uh, uh, brought uh, up in conversation of the Holocaust. And you think of Auschwitz and many other places and those where people suffered. They elicit those strong feelings. Our hearts are moved. And yet, with that being the case, there are those around us out in the world whom these words, these terms, these descriptions mean really nothing at all. They elicit not even the slightest blip on their radar of thoughts and emotions. Now, this evening, as I introduce this one-word title for our message this evening, uh, it has much the same effect on us, doesn't it? It's the simple word of, and it would help if I turned that on, the simple word of Calvary. Calvary. One word, one simple thought, Calvary. It's a word that really nothing hits the heart and our mind for the redeemed, for you and I, quite like this word. It's near and dear. It's familiar to us. It's full of wonderful meaning, and honestly, it ought to have an illicit great feeling uh, within you. It's the subject, or at least part of the title, of many a hymn in our hymn book. We sung a few of them here already this evening. It's more than a simple name or place or event. You see, when we speak of Calvary, when we hear that term shared, the fact is we speak of sins forgiven of peace with God, of eternal life in heaven forevermore. All wrapped up in that one word. We might think that such a powerful word, a word that uh, is found hundreds of times within hymns and and songs and things like that, would be found hundreds of times within the New Testament. We'd think that, oh yeah, you can turn to many different passages and you'd see that term there and such, but alas, it's not. In fact, the term Calvary is only found once in all of the Scripture. And it's in the verse before us tonight. Look with me at Luke chapter 23, and we'll look down at verse 33. And when they were come to the place, which is called Calvary, there they crucified him and the malefactors, and one on the left hand and one on the right. 
There's a uniqueness to this passage, and I think it's good for us to bear out this evening. It's a a consideration for us to understand tonight as we're holding in our hands the King James Bible. Um, The Greek word translated here as Calvary uh, is the Greek word cranion, okay? It's where we get cranium from, and uh, you can, uh, physiology and all that good stuff, and uh, description of our head, our skull, and things like that. It's used a total of um, uh, four times in the scripture. The other three instances, Matthew chapter 27 verse 33 mark 15 22 and john 19 17 are all translated in the king james bible as skull skull but it's interesting the king james translators as skull is the literal meaning they saw fit in the book of luke to take that word and say no we believe that we want to emphasize and led of the holy spirit no doubt to emphasize something else here what they did was they they chose to use the latin word for the greek to render the english word the latin word for that greek word is calvarius Calvarius. It means the same things. It means skull. And the translators then Anglicanize that word. And hence we get our word Calvary. The place of the skull. More importantly, it is the place of our redemption. That's what the term has come to mean for you and I. You know, sadly, several of our modern translations do not do that. And I think they miss out on a powerful meaning of this word. I'm thankful this term and this this title is found in our scriptures. It's found here in Luke chapter 23. Why does that word hold so much for you and I? Here we are, you and I are gathered on a Sunday night. We might say this, as we're gathered in this room, much like Jesus Christ many, many years ago, gathered in a room with his disciples. And he began to explain and discuss what this was supposed to look like. How every church and every group of believers should partake of this in remembrance. How, how we were supposed to do this to remember, commemorate what he did on the cross, but also look ahead for his second coming. Why does it mean so much to us? I believe the verse, specifically a statement within this verse, sheds some light on that answer. But it also gives us a pretty good outline. You see, inside this verse, you can see the four little words here. There, they crucified him. There, they crucified him. Let's break it down in the outline form. We just put this. Number one, the place, there. The place, there. Calvary was the scene of the darkest, foulest, most heinous crime ever committed on this sin-cursed earth. This was the place that would go down in history. Here is the site that in, uh, even today moves our hearts. It elicits strong feelings and emotions in our breast. As we come this evening to commemorate and celebrate what we call the Lord's Supper, what are we doing? Get it, Christian, friend, believer. What we are doing is we are simply revisiting that place. We're pausing for a moment this evening in our lives and even in our minds and we are stopping at the foot of the cross and uh, once more we are gazing upon that hill and more specifically that place and most importantly the cross where our Savior hung. In our minds and our hearts this evening we are transported there as we recall that place. It was there that the term Calvary took on such meaning. It's, that's the reason why it speaks to our hearts. It's the reason we hold it so dear. That night, as Jesus Christ gathered his disciples, and he did what we are about to do in this room, they looked ahead to that place. They considered the cross upon which he would hang, the sacrifice given, 
The cross where the redemption of mankind was going to take place. And my friend, this night, you and I get the chance to look back. We go there in our minds and our hearts reflect on where the redemption of mankind was purchased. Where your eternity and mine forever changed. There, the place. The next word you see is they. They. That would be the people. The people involved. I like to describe the different people gathered there at the cross in this way. Uh, You have the friends, the family, the foes, and the forever changed. Friends, the family, the foes, and the forever changed. If you and I standing and putting our minds there, gazing upon the cross and upon that place known as Calvary, if we were to turn around and gaze at the crowd, at all of those who have been gathered or were gathered there, no doubt we, we can't help but understand we can put ourselves there. We can see ourselves among the crowd, and we can see every person that has ever lived described in such a way. In fact, I would put it this way. As we gaze upon that crowd gathered there at the cross, the fact is we can see every stage of our spiritual lives pictured there. We look a little closer, and you know what we see? We see those of the Jewish faith. We see some of the high priests. We see the scribes, and we see the elders of the Jewish community. And those were the foes of Jesus Christ. They had come to see Jesus Christ crucified, and frankly, they wanted to delight in his suffering. As his enemies, as the one that we're saying, good riddance, let's get rid of this guy. We don't need to hear him. He's leading the people astray in their minds. Uh, They were his foes, his enemies. Before you and I deny being a part of that number, may I remind you that before we trusted Jesus Christ as our Savior, you and I were dead spiritually. We were dead in our trespasses and sin. As such, the, the Bible declares you and I to be an interesting thing. It says that you and I were the foes or enemies of God. Notice what Paul wrote here in Romans chapter 5 and verse 10. You remember it? For if, when, when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. We were enemies. So as we see them there, and man, Look upon the high priests and the elders of the Jewish community and the Sadducees and uh, the scribes, the enemies. My friend, there was a day in our lives that you and I were just there. You and I were enemies like these. Yet this verse speaks of our salvation. It speaks of being reconciled to God, saved through Jesus Christ, our faith in him. And as such, we find ourselves in the, the part of the crowd that I like to describe as forever changed forever changed this group included his disciples his own mother other believers that had gathered there and had followed him during his years of ministry they had come to know jesus christ as what the savior of the world and the savior of their soul praise be to god today you and i are found in that number we possess a future that was forever changed by what christ did there on the cross and through our faith and trust in his work there. But that has an added blessing. There's icing on the cake, isn't there? It keeps getting better, doesn't it? Because the reality is this. Not only are you and I forever changed, but now we can be called the friends and family of God. What a joy. What a delight. 
You see, one of the great joys of being saved is knowing that I am in the family of God, the family of Jesus Christ now. I was once an enemy, but now I am a friend and family of God. Jesus Christ said this to his disciples in John 15. He says, but I have called you friends. It's good to be a friend of God, isn't it? We're blessed tonight. It makes the thought and consideration of Calvary so sweet and and moving. But let us not forget, though each one of these groups of people gathered there at the foot of the cross are so vastly different, they all have in common one reality. They all share one thing. They are or were all sinners. Every single person at the foot of the cross, whether in that day or as they have lived here on earth and have found themselves coming to the realization that, that man, I, I need a Savior. The fact is this, what we have in common is every person was or still is a sinner. Now, the joy of Calvary is this truth. It means for you and I as believers that we are now sinners that have found a Savior. And that's the joy of Calvary, friend. When the simple term of Calvary is mentioned, our hearts should just, man, the emotions should overrun us because what? We realize, yeah, I'm a sinner like everybody else, but praise be unto God, I found my Savior. We ought to feel empathy and sympathy for those who have not found Jesus Christ because he alone is the Savior of the world. And my friend, this right now is a celebration, not only of what he did, but praise be unto God, Stephen Henry found his Savior. Each one of you did too, if you've come to put your faith and trust in him. Every person gathered at the foot of the cross needs a Savior. I'm glad tonight that you and I are celebrating the simple reality that our need has been met, our debt has been paid, our account is settled. My Savior is Christ who died for me. And that leads us to that next word. See it in the verse. It's the third part. We've seen the place, the people, and then there's the penalty. Crucified. Crucified. There they crucified him. Another simple word. But oh, the emotions that flood our soul when we think of that word crucified, especially one who was free of sin, one who was innocent, dying for the guilty, Jesus Christ dying for you and me. That simple word crucified, much like the term Calvary, it speaks of much. It speaks of his suffering. It speaks of of his sacrifice. It speaks of his death. It speaks of the shedding of his innocent blood for my guilty blood speaks of him lovingly enduring the cruelest of fates. You see, friend, it was your penalty for your sin, my penalty for my sin that caused this word to be written here, crucified. Crucified. That unkind word you said this week, that losing of your temper, that ungodly thought that you entertained, that lie that you told, that wrong attitude you display, that, that cheating in school young person, that, that mean and unkind, hateful look you gave, that sinful action this week, they all demanded that this word be found in this verse, crucified. Crucified. You see, Calvary, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, was for me. I created this. You created this. We caused this. He was crucified for us. 
I've shared with you before, but I love the chorus of that song, It Was For Me He Died. You remember it? It was for me he cried. For me he died. For me he shed his blood upon a tree. It was for me he came. For me his shame. For me, oh praise his dear name, it was for me. My friend, that word, we have to own it tonight. I nailed Jesus Christ to the cross. My sins. He was crucified for me, certainly willingly. Yet, no other person could be the one who was nailed to that cross. We praise him tonight for what he did for you and I. And that brings us to that last word, doesn't it? There they crucified him. Fourth point is simply this, the person. Him, Jesus Christ. Only one person in all of history could have made Calvary what it means for you and I today. That is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And that is why he came, isn't it? You see, there's no Calvary, there's no meaning or power in the mention of that place without the person who made it something. It would literally mean nothing to us apart from him. I think of Pearl Harbor, I think of 1776, and boy, there's so much that floods my mind of those things. But I tell you, someone halfway around the world who has no clue half about America, is not an American, doesn't really care, Pearl Harbor in 1776 may not mean anything to them. So it could be true of Calvary. You and I could walk up and down streets. We could go into Walmart or Meyer or Kroger or Wingert's tonight. We might be able to say to somebody, hey, what do you think about Calvary? Uh, Calvary what? What are you talking about? What does that mean? What are you speaking of? And you and I might take a step back, a little aghast. What? You, you don't know about Calvary? My friend, Calvary means so much to you and I because of the person who hung there. And what he did on that cross for you and I. See, he came to earth with Calvary as his destination. And I like that. Why are you here, Jesus Christ? I just wonder if somewhere along his life and his ministry, if someone asked him, hey, hey, Christ, if you say you're the son of God, why in the world did you leave heaven? Why did you come here? Israel of all places, a place that is occupied by a, by a greater force than the Romans. Why would you come here of all people? Why don't you show up in Rome or somewhere? I wonder if someone just called him to the side and in between the time when he's preaching and teaching and healing and they asked him, hey, why did you come? I just wonder if he said, listen, I came for you to go to a place called Calvary. To do for you what no one else could do. See, it was his destination, Calvary was. It was a journey that he took. He, he walked a long journey to arrive there. He did what only he could do. And I, I think that is why I think John the Baptist said it better than anybody in describing this person, the one and only that could die on a cross for your sins and for mine. He said what? Behold the Lamb of God which taketh away the sins of the world. What a great Savior we serve. What a great privilege we have to know Jesus Christ through faith and trust. The statement is simple. It's found in this verse 33. There they crucified him. Four words that describe why Calvary is so special for us. It's why we revisit it this evening. In just a few months, we're going to have a few months, excuse me, a few weeks, we're going to enjoy and celebrate our missions conference. Our theme for that conference is simply this, once for all. 
once for all. I am grateful that Christ only had to die once. It was sufficient for the payment and penalty of our sins. And even greater than that, it is sufficient for all. There isn't a quota. There isn't just a limited number. There isn't just a a little group that it's good. No, no, no. It is sufficient for all. His atonement, his redemption, his death upon the cross. You see, when Christ hung upon that cross, this is quite interesting. It was Passover there in Jerusalem. We know that. And and many Jews had come back, and even others, because it was such a, a widespread event. In fact, historians will tell us that there was probably over one million, a million plus people that have come back into the city. The place was bustling. It was happening. I mean, things were going on. and It was right there in the middle of the Passover that Jesus Christ was crucified. And uh, they were so very concerned about that. And the reality is this, because so many people come. Now, get this. Don't miss this, there were so many nations and countries and people groups, ethnicities that were represented there while Jesus Christ hung on the cross. It's a wonderful picture and a reality that, my friend, Jesus Christ died for all people. His death is sufficient. We find in Acts chapter 2, it's pretty amazing when you read in Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost, you, we have a great list of many nations that were there. Many people groups that are represented still hanging around after the Passover. And uh, boy, you get a good understanding of how many people, how many groups of people there. My friend, may I just encourage you this evening, Calvary is not for one people. It's not for one nation. It's not for a select group of people. Calvary is for all the world. And our missions conference is to encourage you and I that once for all, Jesus died. He died once, sufficient for everyone and for everything. And he did it for all, every single person. Tonight, though, as we'll look ahead to our missions conference, tonight is about making it personal, isn't it? Tonight is you and I saying Calvary is a part of my personal history. It's a big part of what defines my life. Because of what he did there in my faith in him. Children, young person, you may say, well, Pastor Henry, why do we make this such a big deal on a Sunday night and we have the Lord's Supper every other month and, and uh, we look at the cross, we, we, we preach and consider it. Why is it such a big deal? Because, my friend, this defines us. We are who we are because of what Christ did and who he is. This is who we are. Because, my friend, there'll become a day where you and I are in heaven and we're celebrating and rejoicing with the very Lamb of God. The one who is represented here by a little wafer of bread, a little grape juice. It pictures what he did for you and I. Something the Bible tells us we ought never to forget. My friend, can I tell you the simple term of Calvary ought to never lose its wonder for you and I. Father, we thank you for your word this evening. And Father, as we get into our observance of what you have commanded us to observe, Father, I pray that you would speak to our hearts, that you would remind us of what Calvary means for us, that you would continually remind even our hearts of what was done there in that place for us, our eternity being purchased, our redemption at a high cost of Jesus Christ's death and his shedding of his blood. My Father, I pray that this evening we would strive, as our verse for October says, to walk worthy of the name you've given us. May we increase in good works. May we increase in 
our knowledge of you. And yet through it all, Father, may our minds and hearts always come back to that hill outside Jerusalem upon which we were forever changed. This evening, Father, as we observe the Lord's Supper, we praise you. We are grateful for a God of heaven that loved this world so much that you sent your only begotten Son to come to earth to change everything for us. Father, this evening we are grateful unto Jesus Christ, our high priest. We are grateful that he willingly, sacrificially came to earth. That, Father, he set aside his own will and he performed your will, Father. We're grateful that he died on the cross. And, Lord, we're grateful that he went into the grave. We're grateful that he didn't stay there. Father, we're grateful that he resurrected unto new life. And, Father, in him we have new life. Grateful to be that new creation in Christ. Thank you for that. And Lord, I pray tonight as we partake and we remember and we celebrate what Christ has done for us, may our hearts be full of gratitude. May our minds and our hearts be purposeful and living for you. And Lord, may we be encouraged and challenged to even share it this month with someone. May we share with them what Calvary means. As we look ahead to our missions conference, Father, we pray that you would work in our hearts and our midst so that we can take the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ and what he did on Calvary to the world. May you empower us to do that, and we'll give you the glory for it. We 